בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, it's always amazing to be here in Miami with the Olga uh, group, ברוך השם, each one of the שיעורים here have been uh, extraordinary already for almost two years, I think, ברוך השם, and we've had uh, miracle after miracle from this group. The uh, story I said that uh, in yesterday's lecture, to start the lecture about the uh, women that started uh, covering their hair came from this group, Baruch Hashem, and a lot of amazing things have come. Uh, today's lecture will um, go to a uh, to a refuash lema of uh, Michel Koto, Ampara Balufe, Ruben Joseph Ben Rivka, Sara Lea Batsara, Gladys Nunez, Edin Magorero, Josefina Matos, Esperanza Avila, uh, Raquel Sandler and Monte Sandler, Luardes Rensoli, Yoshua Mikhail Ben Hadassah, Bar Bresnik, David Gamliel Ben Hadassah, Nancy Deuesa, Patricia Valmana, Michel Valmana, Yedidia Garcia, Pablo Lorenzo, Mirian Batsara, Nicole Valmana, Augustine Hernandez, Jorge Hernandez, Isabel Beta Convet, Betankovet, Liliana Ante Bonilla, Gilberto Meneses, Jacqueline Rojas, Roger Prado, Suarez Vasquez, Inid? Inid Vasquez? Vasquez? Inedo? Inez Vasquez? Inez Vasquez, Ada Vasquez, Olga Hernandez, Jocelyn Morejon, Miriam Batsara, Rabbi Elona Nava, Ben Anet Miriam, David Ben Nesriya, Doris Bajora, Sara Bat Levana, Levana Batsara, and all of Am Yisrael, Bezat Hashem, especially the ones that we will be talking about today. The ones that have a spiritual disease that most of them do not know they have. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about the uh, issue of Erev Rav, the uh, evil among us and within us. Yesterday we discussed how this Erev Rav could also be sometimes our leaders, rabbis that uh, are not really trying to get the, um, the nation closer to Hashem, but further from Hashem. Sometimes it could be uh, even uh, people that are not intending to do it, but uh, unfortunately get infected by it as a result of bad teaching. Uh, but all of this aside from obviously covering the Mishnayot of our Musar series, all of this uh, last couple of weeks has been connected to one major issue, uh, which is the whole debacle that has happened from uh, Joseph Dweck, the uh, former rabbi in uh, London, who today announced that uh, he is uh, resigning from his position as a Dayan in, uh, in London, Baruch Hashem, uh, until uh, the issues of, uh, you know, of, of what's happened is clarified. 
There's been a lot of backlash from the Gedolei especially from the Sephardic side. And all of it started because of a lecture about homosexuality in connection to the Torah. Now, the lecture that he had, unfortunately, left many, even the people that support him, confused. Simply confused that what did he actually say? How could some people understand it to be a positive thing, but most understand it to be a very negative thing when you connect it to the Torah? If you connect it to the gay pride parades, then obviously they're celebrating over stuff like this. They're probably going to have another parade after hearing such a lecture. Shem But if you hear about the nation of Israel that's trying to do tshuva, that's trying to get closer to Hashem Barach and publicize and sanctify Hashem's name, this is no less than Choban Bet HaMikdash. So how could it be that some people understand it as a Choban Bet HaMikdash and a well-known rabbi, which the Gedolei Dosa, you can't even call him rabbi anymore, but someone that had the position of rabbi can go in such a route that most people understand it as a choban, but some understand it as being open-minded, modern. How could it be? What's so difficult about the issue? What is so difficult about saying According to the Torah, Hashem wrote it in multiple places, it's not allowed to be a homosexual. It's not allowed. It's simple. You look at the Alakha, whether you look at the Shulchan uh, Aruch, you look at Mishnah Torah, the Rambam, and Perik it's not allowed. There's no leniencies. So what's the confusion about what is the confusion? How could this confusion lead us so far away from home? If it was, listen, I think you should start, you know, keeping Shabbat 15 minutes early than the actual time you're supposed to versus 16 minutes early versus 20 minutes early. I think you should do Tefillin at this particular time versus this particular time, you know, okay, it's a, you know, it's easy to understand how such minimal details can be misunderstood. There's a whole Gemara in Masechet Brachot, Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel argue about what is the ideal time to pray in the morning. Okay, they argued. Eventually they got to a conclusion. But I can understand if it's a close issue, whether it's 6 o'clock in the morning is good, 6.15, 6.12, 6.13, 6.50. There's many different options, but they're all close. It's not like one is saying, pray at 6, the other one is saying, no, it's not 6 a.m., 6 p.m. So it's a small thing. But here you have something that the Torah itself says is outright not allowed. Hashem says it disgusts him that when his creations 
whether it's his firstborn son of Am Yisrael, or even the Goyim, the Bnei Noach, when they commit homosexuality, Hashem is considering that act disgusting. What is the confusion here? How could it be so confused? So Baruch Hashem, and Be'ezat Hashem, this Mishnah is going to help us understand where he and many like him have gone wrong and continue to go wrong. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you now, Mark, but because I took the time to look at a couple of couplets. Mm-hmm. We did, and, and, uh, and I got uh, uh, another question that I would like you to have to Sure, sure. This is the fact, for example, when he mentioned, sometimes said, hey, okay, Rabbi Ubaria said this, but whatever it is, uh, I don't know, it's not like this, it's like that. I mean, right. even criticizing the sages. The sages. Right. Even if, and even using words from the Rambam mm-hmm. and putting it in the context of his argument to validate his argument. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed that. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, unfortunately, I, I even had the minutes. I even mm-hmm. marked the, the time and the price he said, which I don't know, uh, and I'm asking you to do think it's a, it's a correct. Behavior of, of well, I'll tell you what the Torah says about such things. Forget about my, my opinion is irrelevant. My opinion doesn't make a difference. God's opinion is the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters. I'm human. I could be wrong, I could be right. Who cares about my opinion? The Gemara, Masechet Eruvin, page 21b, says the following. Kol amal'ig al chachamim nidon Anyone who makes fun of the teachings of the sages, his end is to be boiled in feces. Where is this boil? Will you see any any pools of feces in the world? No. They're talking about anyone that makes fun of the sages, whether it be Rambam or it even be Ravovadia, Zechet Sadik whether it be Moshe Rabbeinu or it be the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Doesn't matter. You make fun of the sages, treat them like they're just eh. The Gemara is specifically telling you your end, or that person's end, Shalom, is in the seventh chamber of Gehinnom. The one that never ends, the one where you'll find also J.C. Penny, you'll also find Bilam, you'll find Titus, you'll find Hitler. You'll find the worst human beings that ever existed. And the Gemara says in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17, that section, even after the Mashiach, Mashiach comes, and the world here ends. Mashiach comes, we're going to celebrate for another thousand years. And then it's all, all the Neshamot go out of this world, we go to a better place even. The world here is going to end, but that chamber of Gehenom will never end. The first six chambers, they end. Tough, horrible, disaster. We never had a shiur by Gehenom. And trust me, we don't want to have a shiur by Gehenom. First six already bad enough. The seven, which is the worst one, Gemara says specifically, it never ends. Never. One that goes in doesn't come out. So when you just treat the words of the sages 
Like it's just, you know, eh, maybe this, maybe that. Like it's, you're talking about baseball cards. You have a problem. You have to do serious, serious tshuva. Serious tshuva. Serious tshuva because not only did you desecrate Hashem's name, you desecrated his firstborn child. You desecrated his favorite. Now sometimes Hashem is willing to put his own honor aside for us because he loves us so much. A father sometimes is willing to let his son get away with a few things. The son yells, yells the father, chutzpan. But sometimes the father's like, you know what, I'll let this one get away, but I'll give him a look. So he knows, don't do it again. But I'll let this one get away. I don't have to slap him every time he yells. I don't have to punish him every time. He'll get the point just by me looking at him a certain way. So father sometimes lets it go. But if somebody came to his son and slapped him in the face, it's virtually impossible for him to let it go. Because it's his son. Because he loves him. Even more than he loves himself sometimes. So, when someone goes against the sages, like unfortunately some people decide to become giburim, heroes, they go say things like, no, listen, the Zohar, nah, there's no, it's not 100%, it's from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, there's doubts, even though that there is valid points to that, that there is doubts, the reality of it is, everyone knows it's a holy book. And no one is in a position to say it's not valid. The fact that there is doubts, no doubts, say what you will. But you can't say it's not holy. You can't say there's no secrets in there that don't exist anywhere else. You can't say that this is not something that we consider So when people foolishly make fun of the Zohar, or they make fun of the Midrashim, no, come on, you really believe that Shlomo HaMelech was riding on a giant uh, eagle? But they're not doing it out of innocence just to make, you know, light of the issue. They're doing it to make fun of the Torah with intention to ridicule the Torah, with intention to cool you off. You're hot with Torah, you're doing tshuva, but they're telling you, listen, you really believe that Moshe Rabbeinu split the ocean to twelve? Like the Rambam wrote, come on, no. Relax. Maybe it was like a half. Maybe it was once, 12. You really think that Ma'am Loez that wrote that Yehuda, Yehuda, the son of Yaakov, Shevet Yehuda, when he would get angry, according to Ma'am, the Midrash Ma'am Loez, which uses obviously over 500 different sources, says when he would get angry, there would be pieces of metal that would come out of his chest. And his roar was able to destroy buildings. That's what the Midrash says. So it's, ah, no, it's human beings have metal coming out of them. They make fun of it, like it's a joke. But a Chacham wrote this. A Chacham wrote this. Why do you think he wrote it? Because he's writing a comic book? He wrote it for, for what? For fun? Whether you believe it or not, it's your you don't have to. It's not one of the 13 principles of faith to believe in a Zohar, to believe in all of the Midrashim, all of the Agadot. Some we know for a fact are 100% true. Some have certain doubts. Some were written in a certain way that's unusual on purpose. 
Needless to say, they're all considered divrei chachamim. So when someone takes it upon themselves and makes light of the issue to make fun of it, that's what the Gemara is ready for. Masechet Eruvin, page 21b. For that person, that's what they write. Why? Because you just took Hashem's firstborn son and the favorite one, and you made fun of him. And you can't let that go. Unless you do serious, serious chuba. So when this dwek made fun of the sages, it was almost worse than him saying that homosexuality is the best thing or it's fantastic or whatever other nonsense that he said. It was even it was worse. Because in essence what he did was exactly what the Erev Rav do, which is he said, listen, if the Rambam is possibly wrong here, mm-hmm. could very well be that all of Rambam is wrong. If this sage said this, it could be that all of it, that's Erev Rav. And this is why it's an obligation of every holy Jew to fight against this tooth and nail. This is why we don't hold back. This is why we're not, oh, Lashonara, there's no Lashonara here. We've been as voiceless as could possibly be. Anytime there's any headline about this issue, we've been the first to publicize it. And the reason why? Because the Gemara tells us so. Masechet Sanhedrin, page 82, Makom she'esh chilul Hashem, en kvod In a place that there is chilul Hashem, the secretion of Hashem's name, there's no consideration for honoring rabbis. He's not a rabbi. He desecrated Hashem's name. This is why the Gedolei Ador said you can't call him a rabbi. Do you understand? So when someone is, again, makes a mistake because they use their opinion versus the Torah opinion as a result of uh, their pride, that's a human error that happens. It happens. But when someone makes fun of the Torah, i.e. makes fun of the sages that wrote it, he just took it to a new level. And that's a problem. So this issue is constantly happening, constantly happening. And one of the reasons is exactly what this Mishnah is about. In the last couple of weeks, we talked about Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, who was known for his holiness, his prayer, known for the foundation of his Teaching being Yirat Shamaim, saying that if you have if your teachings has no Yirat Shamaim, it's not Torah, it could be history, it could be math, it could be archaeology, it could be science, it's definitely not Torah because the foundation of Torah must be Yirat Shamaim. Further than that, we yesterday Shior he said that if you're just learning to know but not to do, it's also worth nothing. So we learn to do. We learn Torah in order for it to affect us. We learn Torah in order for it to soften our character traits. If you're an angry person, slowly but surely, not becoming angry. Not like the secular self-help books that tell you, just keep it inside. There's no wisdom in keeping your anger inside. The wisdom of the Torah says, don't be angry. Meaning, Realize that the only reason why you're angry is not a valid reason. It's not a valid reason. Even if something annoying happened, it's only annoying because you don't understand the real meaning of why it happened. 
you're not understanding that the root of the cause is you. You got a flat tire because you made a sin. Not because you are the most righteous person that ever lived and uh, you don't deserve any kapat avonot. No, there's a reason for it. So, and obviously, much more than that. So first and foremost, Rabbi Chaynam ben Dosa is telling us, know that we learn to do. In this Mishnah now, in Gimel Yud Gimel, 3.13, it says the following, Hu Ayaumel, Kol Sheruach Abriot, Nochayemeno, Ruach HaMakor, Nochayemeno, וכל שאין רוח הבריות נוחה ממנו, אין רוח המקום נוחה ממנו. He used to say, meaning רבי חנן בן דוסה, if the spirit of one's fellows, other people, are pleased with him, then the spirit of God is pleased with him. But if the spirit of one's fellows are not pleased with him, then the spirit of the omnipresent of God is not pleased with him. Literally, this is a very simple, the literal translation is, if the world around you, the people around you, are happy with you, then Hashem's happy with you. But if the people around you are not happy with you, then Hashem's not happy. This seems to contradict the previous two Mishnayot. Where Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa is saying, first thing you have to worry about, Yirat Shemayim. Worry about God first. Then do what he says. Now he's telling us, make sure that everybody likes you. And then Hashem is going to like you. There's confusion here. Tosfot Yom Tov connects this Mishnah to a... Um, verse in Proverbs, Sefer Mishle, chapter 3, verse 4, who says, Umatza chen v'sechel, tov be'enei v'adam. So you shall find grace and good understanding in the sight of God and man. So, the Sfat Emet questions this verse. says, wait a minute, this is kind of the opposite. Here in this verse in Proverbs, the wisest man of all time says, you shall find grace and good understanding in the sight of God and man. So God comes first, just like the previous two Mishnayot. First Yirat Shamaim, then do what Hashem says, then worry about what people think. This verse is just like that. But this Mishnah is contradicting it. How could it be? He says, only once someone favors, finds favor in the eyes of God, will he be blessed with this chen? Will he be blessed with this inner charm that will make him pleasant to the people? Meaning that only once you've developed the foundation of Yirat Shamaim and Maasim Tovim, good deeds, then you even have a chance of having a world around you that will like you in the right way. 
On the other hand, if they like you without you having Yirat Shamayim, if they like you without you doing good deeds, in accordance to the Torah good deeds, not in the good deeds of what our perception is, then that won't last. So, Rabbi Yisrael Misalant, it's very, it's Bala Musar, very, very sharp, had Ruach HaKodesh, and he was known to say that a rabbi whose congregation doesn't want to fire him, he's not a real rabbi. If he's a real rabbi, part of his congregation wants to fire him. But if they actually end up firing him, then he's not a mensch. That means he's, he's not that good of a rabbi. Took it too far. Here he's telling us why, why, why is this, why, why would you want to be a rabbi that your whole congregation wants to fire you? Or a part of them at least. Because we learn this from the Gemara Masechet Ketubot, page 105b. Abaye says that if you find a rabbi where every one of his keila, his entire congregation, likes him. The only reason they like him is because he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't tell them anything challenging. He doesn't tell them to change. He doesn't tell them to do anything that's what they're really supposed to do. All he does is tell everybody, you're tzaddikim, you're fine, you're perfect. He just gives them compliments all day. They don't even like him for his wisdom. They only like him because all he does is give them compliments and never ever rebukes them. He says that's the only way that you will ever find a rabbi where everyone likes him. Because if he's a real rabbi, he must have people that hate him. He must have people that say, ah, I can't stand that rabbi. Why? Why? Ah, he keeps telling me to keep Shabbat. Well, is he wrong? Well, I don't want to keep Shabbat. Why does he keep telling me? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe he cares about you. The story I heard about Rab Nisim again, Zechat Tzadik one time they uh, invited him, this really rich guy, who uh, wasn't a Shomer Torah mitzvot, heard about him, want to do mitzvah, but without doing tshuva. You know, sometimes people want to get out of it. They want to get out of jail free card. They want to try to say, listen, I don't want to like do tshuva, but can I just do this one thing and it's fine? Like right before the lecture, I got a text, and I... Uh, a woman asked me, listen, what about all these people I know are not keeping Shabbat? What about if I could just convince them to all say one word from the Torah every day for the rest of their life? They just open a book every day, and they're going to read one word or one verse out of the Torah every day. Are they going to be okay when Mashiach comes? Like, it's not okay if they don't keep Shabbat? No, who says that what, one verse in the Torah is going to override the entire Torah? Who said that? Where did you read this? Why, why, would Hashem, why would Hashem settle for you reading one verse in the Torah instead of fulfilling the entire Torah? When He said fulfill the entire Torah, He says the entire Torah, not just one verse. Needless to say, reading one verse or one letter or one word. Point being is that people are constantly looking for a shortcut. Negotiating with Hashem. 
They can't even negotiate with their lawyer for a lower bill. They can't negotiate with the electric company to lower the bill. They can't negotiate with the deli to give them a bagel for free. But they want to negotiate with the king of kings to just let go of the entire Torah. Just let me just read one word or one verse. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a shortcut. Keep the Torah, you're in good shape. You don't keep the Torah, you're in bad shape. Simple as it gets. To such an extent that when someone starts seriously, seriously learning and doing tshuva, he realizes that even after he's done tshuva for a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, ten years, the longer he's in it and the deeper he's in it, the more he realizes how much more he has to go. The deeper you are in tshuva, the more you realize that you have a long way to go. You never get to a point where you say, if you're deep into tshuva, you're serious about tshuva, you never get to a point where you say, ah, I'm done. Never. Why? Because you realize how much more, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know, how much you're missing. I'll give you guys a little taste of an understanding of what the Torah expects from you. And again, this is not expected from somebody who doesn't keep anything. It's expected from somebody that's gradually increasing. When you first start doing tshuva, first you stop sinning. Stop violating Shabbat, driving on Shabbat, smoking cigarettes on Shabbat, stop wasting seeds, stop going with women you're not allowed to, or men that you're not allowed to. The big sins. But there are certain things that the Torah says are not only sins, but they can hurt you in a big way. In the, um, the book, this book actually, Echtov Israel by Rabbi Frank Kachlo, my Rav, he, uh, he mentions a, a verse from Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 16. About someone that speaks filthy language, cursing, inappropriate language. In the Torah, Hashem in Parashat Kedushim, Hashem says, you must be holy, because I am holy. You are my firstborn son, so you need to represent me. You need to be holy because I am holy. One of the ways we need to be holy is protecting our breed, protecting our modesty, but also protecting our mouth. And in the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, page 33a, it says, En kitz la'onesh he says from this verse from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 16 we learn that the punishment of someone who uses filthy language is so awful 
that even it could be to such an extent that even if it was decreed in Shemaim, on Rosh Hashanah, that he's going to get 70 years of reward. He did some big mitzvot in his life. Last year he did big mitzvot, great things. We're going to give him reward for 70 years. It's a good reward in this world. Because even if it was decreed in Shemaim for him to get reward for 70 years, by using filthy language, it could turn into 70 years of punishment. For a simple curse word that he said or heard. Not just said, heard too. When I first learned this, I was petrified. Because I used to listen to rap music. And hip-hop. And all those types of things. And every second word is a curse. I'm like, oh, how do I get out of this game? Oh, my built for myself. I started erasing all my music. Eventually, I stopped listening. Now, anything, if I ever listen to music, it's without lyrics. I don't trust anyone. Listen to classical music. Whenever there's ever time to listen... Wordless. No no lyrics. Why? I don't want to get into trouble. He started, somebody starts cursing. I'm going to get in trouble for that. I have to fix my own mouth. I to, you know, even though as a businessman in the business world in Wall Street, it's not, it's a, uh, your overconfidence gets you to speak like a truck driver once in a while. And you build these bad habits of saying this word and that word. You learn this Gemara, you learn this Divrei Chazal, Divrei Chachamim. Scarier than any. It's scarier than Gehenom. Said I'm going to get reward for seven years. You're going to turn it to bad? Can I start doing tshuva? What's the first doing tshuva? Start erasing music with bad words. I know you like it. I know 50 Cent is great and Eminem and DMX and all these people. They're ruining your life. Your spiritual life. They're ruining it. So, when Hashem says be holy, it has to do with a lot of different things. Needless to say, we have to be holy with the words that come out of our mouth when we're teaching. So, Rabbi Hanna ben Dosa is saying, if your foundation is Yirat Shemaim, and the only reason of how, you know, why you're learning the Torah is to implement it, that, my friend, is going to earn you many rewards. One of those many rewards is that Hashem is going to put chen, He's going to put charm into you. He's going to make you likable by the, those around you for the right reason. And the fact that they like you is sanctifying Hashem's name. You doing the will of Hashem you're showing people, look, I learned Torah. makes me a better human being. I don't curse anymore. I don't speak like a truck driver. I don't do this. I, don't, I start becoming a human being, a Jewish human being. People say, oh, wow, look, he changed. Look, she changed. Look, she actually wears clothes now. We don't have to hide the eyes of the kids. We have to tell them that this woman just came back from the beach every time she comes over. Look. So, makes you likable. Says that's Kiddush Hashem. You just by you doing it, you're sanctifying Hashem's name, gives you an additional reward. Hashem just found another loophole to give you more reward. For what? For doing his will. 
He's constantly looking for ways to give you more reward. Just give him a good reason. The problem is when we have a mentality of looking for shortcuts, looking for ways to beat the system. We're trying to get Am Yisrael and the world around us to like us without the Torah as the reason. We're trying to get them to like us because we say what they like to hear. The Torah says homosexuality is not allowed. We say, ah, maybe God didn't mean it. The Torah says, you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. They say, ah, come on, you know, Moses didn't have a car. Who knows if he would have passed the test. Or some type of nonsense that people make up in their head. <laughs> the Torah says you have to be honest. They say, yeah, only with Jews. You could steal from the Goyim. Who says you could steal from the Goyim? It's even worse. It's Chilul Hashem. All types of things that the Torah says, but people say, no, maybe this, maybe that. They soften it. They use euphemisms, things to minimize the heavy wrath of Hashem to make it look like it's Shem Hashem, little people rules. And one of the reasons is because we want to be liked the rabbi that doesn't rebuke, he doesn't rebuke because he wants you to like him. Because if you like him, his bank account grows. People don't donate to people they don't like. Did you ever see a Ku Klux Klan foundation advertised on PBS? Let's raise money for Psychopaths that want to kill people for absolutely no reason whatsoever? No. Unfortunately, in today's world, there's still people that give money to these crazy people. But nonetheless, the public at large still hasn't gone to Sodom and Gomorrah yet. We're close, but not quite there. Especially with the recent attacks today and yesterday and every day it seems like there's a new attack. People are constantly asking, oh, why does Hashem let this happen? Why does Hashem let this happen? Why do these attacks happen? They act like David HaMelech says, David HaMelech says, look at the affliction and the toil that I'm going through. For what? For the one sin I made that the Gemara says is not really a sin. The sin with Batsheva, that in his level was a sin, but according to everybody else, it's not a sin. The Gemara says specifically, anyone that says that David HaMelech made a sin is a kofel. He's making a mistake. He didn't make a sin. It was not a sin. But in his level, it was a sin. Why? Because him making it look like it was possible that Batsheva was still married. wasn't good because he was such a holy person. But she wasn't. She was. She got a get. Every, every time the soldiers would leave, they would give their wives a get. Because many of them, sometimes Hashem wouldn't come back. 
says, for the one sin that I made, which the Gemara says he didn't make, look how much suffering I'm getting. We're the opposite. We don't have an end to the amount of sins that we make, and Hashem gives us a little bit of suffering. The guy woke up late. The bank account doesn't have as much money as he has as he wants. The check didn't clear. You got a flat tire. Whatever, you got a small little kapat avonot, a little bit of suffering. You got a cold. You broke a finger. Okay, fine. We have a little bit of suffering, millions of sins. We're like, look, we complain to Hashem like, like we're David HaMelech. David HaMelech, one sin, endless suffering. We have endless sins, a little bit of suffering, we complain. Today we see shootings every other day, it seems like, especially in America. Somebody asked me today, I said, oh, there was another two shootings. It's like, where? I'm like, in America. I'm like, bombings happen elsewhere. Shootings, America. Everywhere else, they bomb. America, shooting. Why? It's not because we're righteous. It's not because we have so many mitzvot that Hashem wants to give us suffering. When you are advocating homosexuality, abortions, and all types of things that Hashem is considering disgusting, you're not going to get the man from Shemaim. The wrath, maybe, but not the man. So those that are saying things that are nicer to hear, no, maybe Hashem has a nicer way to reward us and fix the world in a certain way. Maybe these attacks are happening because He's killing Bad people. Okay, go tell the guy's family that is that people that got killed are bad people. No. According to your standards, he wasn't a bad person. Oh, but maybe uh, the reality of it is it's all nonsense. There's no light way of looking at it. The reality of it is there's no such thing as suffering without sin. When people ask the question, where was God during the Holocaust? and six million Jews and tens of millions of other non-Jews were murdered in cold blood, where was God? The simple answer is He was right there doing it. Nothing happens without God's signature. Why does it happen? He has His own cheshbonot. He has His own reasons. But when bad things come to this world, it's because we did bad. It's not because we did good. It's not because we're such holy people that holy things are that bad things are happening to us because Hashem just having fun with us. Oh, wow, they're, such, they're all such tzaddikim. Let me throw them another couple of holocausts. Like, what kind of God? What kind, is that your God? It's a problem type of God. Hashem is just giving you punishment just because you're a tzaddik? No. No punishment. If there's no sin, if there's sin, there's punishment. It's simple. It's one of the 13 principles of faith. So when people are trying to use euphemism and minimize the heavy hand of Hashem Barach and stay away from Musar, like some people, part of some big organizations like Chabad, or even some uh, big parts of other parts of uh, Judaism, are mamash anti-Musar. Even though the founders of Chabad were the biggest advocates of Musar. 
Today's many Chabadniks are anti-Musar. Not all of them, but many. Yeah. Why? Very simple reason. They don't think that Musar has a reward in this world. Whether it has a reward in the next world or not, obviously, if you fix your midot, it has a reward. It's, it's, it's not, it doesn't require... It's not a chidush. It's not a chidush to know that if you are a better person, you're a softer character, you're nicer, you're more generous, you're more modest, there's no question that Hashem is going to welcome that and that type of character trait to Gan Eden. He's not going to welcome the thief, he's going to welcome the generous person that actually earned his money and gave it. He's not going to welcome the immodest, he's going to welcome the modest. He's not going to welcome the angry, he's going to welcome the one that's calm and the peacemaker. So it's not a chidush to know that this is the traits of Hashem and this is what he wants in his Gan Eden. The problem is not that. It's not, there's no debate of whether Hashem wants you to have good character or not. What is the problem with the people that are anti-Musar? The ones that are anti-Musar don't believe that there is a benefit to Musar and character development in this world. The next world is far away. They know so little about Musar that they don't realize how great the benefit is for learning Musar in this world. Next world is easy. Talk about this world. The amount of benefit that a person has for learning Musar in this world is greater than anything else that he can do. And the reason why is because it not only benefits you directly by you becoming calmer, with less anxiety, with more emunah, with more kavanah, all the greatest things you can possibly want as far as a human being character traits, you get through character development, which is Musar. So not only does it benefit you, but it benefits the world around you. One way is that they get to benefit out of your smile instead of the upside-down smile, they get the upside-up smile. Instead of you being miserable, now you're happy. Instead of you being anxious, now you're confident. Instead of all the negative traits, they get to benefit out of you being a positive person. Two, they have somewhere to learn from. Who doesn't want to be like the guy that's confident for the right reason? Who doesn't want to be like the guy that's happy all the time? Who doesn't want to be like the woman that's classy and not the one that looks like she just came out of 42nd Street in the 1980s? Who doesn't want to look like that? You understand? So people want to emulate... Good. So now they're benefiting. So it's not just you benefiting. The world around you benefits. So the people that are anti-Musar, they have no idea what Musar is and how much it impacts you in this world. Unless it has to do with money. Because if you go to any major guru, coach, business coach, Self-help author. What do they teach? They teach you to become a better salesperson, a better CEO, a better whatever you are, better parent, 
How? By teaching you Musar. By telling you different types of character flaws that most people have, which most likely you have, because it's just general vague information. Most people are lazy. Most people, if they have an opportunity to be lazy, they're lazy. Most people want to do whatever they feel like it. They don't like to listen to anybody telling them what to do. And so on and so forth. So, the... The uh, self-help gurus are teaching you Musar. But they're telling you that the reward for learning Musar is endless success in whatever endeavor you're doing. You're going to make money. You're going to be a better parent. You're going to be a better husband. You're going to be a better wife. You're going to end up benefiting in this world. The loss is nothing. Why? Because the 100 bucks you paid for the book or the $5,000 you paid for the seminar. That's the downside if you don't listen. Other than that, there's no downside. This is what we talked about, I think, last week or the week before that. So here, when you tell the rabbis, listen, why don't you bring Tony Robbins to your shul, everybody will be excited. Oh, Tony Robbins, he's going to help us become more passionate, become more this, become more that. Even though at the end of his lectures he talks about Christianity, which is horrible for Bittekneset, uh, like that other guy, um, Matthew Kelly, uh, but not to the same level. But nonetheless, the point is is that you bring a Tony Robbins to a Bet Knesset. You tell him, oh, you can afford him, you can bring him. Great, bring him. Why? He's going to get us to become better. How is he going to get you to be better? By teaching you Musar. Him, they'll bring. But somebody like me, they'll never bring. Why? Because I tell you all the same things, except I tell you the bad part also. I tell you that if you don't do it, it's not going to cost you money. It's going to cost you your eternity. Because that's what the Torah says. That's what the Torah says. So, the people that are against Musar don't have an inclination of what it actually means to be someone that's Baal Musar, someone that's actually learning Musar, simply because they don't think there's a benefit to it in this world. And they're wrong. Horribly, horribly wrong. So when you actually learn Musar, everything changes. Your whole life changes. It's a uh, it's an extraordinary development. It's okay. It's an extraordinary change in life for someone to uh, to learn Musar. Uh, but again, it's if you treat Divrei Chazal, you treat the teachings of the sages like it's a uh, math book or a science book or a history book. Everything that we say is not uh, is irrelevant to you. So now, when People are teaching things in order to please the public. Like Rabbi Chayinah ben Dosa here is saying, if you teach with Yirat if you teach to do, you're going to get to a point where your world around you is going to like you. And as a result of the world around you liking you, that by itself is another mitzvah called Kiddush Hashem. You're going to be an a walking Kiddush Hashem. You're going to constantly look for ways to please Hashem. The um, opposite, on the other hand, is a walking Chilul Hashem. But sometimes people are confused. Sometimes they don't know where they stand. They think they're Tzadikim, but in reality they're Reshaim. 
Who are these people? These are people that do a mitzvah, but not really a real mitzvah. Like a mitzvah for the purpose of honor, not for the purpose of fulfilling the will of Hashem. So for example, let's say there's a uh, group of people that uh, try to make each other feel better about each other. They say, oh, listen, who wants to make a mitzvah and give me a ride to the store? Uber wants to make a mitzvah. You just pay them 15 bucks and they'll, they'll pay you. Like why, like, why would anybody have to, what, no one else has, has anything to do with their life, they're going to take you to the store. If you have no money, it's fine. But we're not talking about people that don't have any money. We're talking about people that are just asking other people for things just to make themselves look good. Another time I saw, say, who wants to make a mitzvah and share the cost of this uh, uh, butter with me? The thing was $3. I don't want all of it. So you don't want to be baltashchit. Baltashchit is waste, being wasteful. So, you know, I don't want to waste it. So who wants to share the cost and take half the butter? This is shtuyot. This is nonsense. This is just being pretentious. This is making a joke out of real mitzvot. This is not a mitzvah. This is saying, oh yeah, we should really be, as a community, we should invite more people to our community for Shabbat. Okay, so invite people to your house. Oh no, no, I can't do it, but maybe you guys can. Like, you're doing mitzvot on other people's back. Or the guy that wakes up early in the morning to go do slichot in, in, in the month of Elul, but to do the mitzvah, go do slichot, but he wants to make sure the entire neighborhood knows that he's awake. So when he drives to Bikneset, he pumps the music loud enough for Europe to find out. And his whole house woke up and he's making extra noise to make sure, oh, my kids need to know that I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning. The neighbors need to know that I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Everybody needs to woke up. Needs to know that I woke up. Or the guy that donates to the Beknesset, not because he cares about a Beknesset. There's 500 Beknesset already in the neighborhood. But he wants another Beknesset, not because he wants a Beknesset, not because he's even holy, not even because he keeps Shabbat or anything. Because he wants his name on the door. So that's fake. That's not real mitzvot. For that, as a matter of fact, you get punished. You don't get rewarded. Because you're treating the Torah like it's a joke. You mean you're giving it a bad name. Real chesed, to give you an idea of caring. There's a story about Rav Nisim again, where I uh, started before, where one of these people that wasn't religious um, invited him to come talk to a few of his friends, maybe he could raise some money, for his organization, for his yeshi, for his kolels, and so on. And he said, listen, there's only one condition, though. He said, okay, what's the condition? He goes, listen, first we're going to come to my house, spend the night there, because you're arriving late. The next day, you're going to meet everybody. But there's one condition. Okay, what's the condition? Don't talk to my wife about anything religious. Not Shabbat, not Kisui Rosh, nothing. 
Okay? Okay. No problem. They arrive. He gets to the house. They sit down. As soon as he sits down, he immediately starts talking about Shabbat. How could you be, call yourself a Jew without keeping Shabbat? What do you do? He goes, Rabbi, I told you don't talk to her about it. He keeps going, keeps going. He goes, Rabbi, I'm going to cancel the whole thing. And he keeps going, he keeps going, he keeps going. It won't become a tzedeket. She keeps Shabbat. She took it. By the end of Shabbat, she took on everything. She took on Kisulo, Shmadesti, everything. Who told the story? The rich guy. The rich guy told the story to one of Rav Nisim Yagen's sons when Rav Nisim Yagen, in the end of his uh, life, he became very sick. And uh, this guy was constantly next to him in the hospital. And uh, he didn't exactly look like the most religious guy in the world. He had a kippah, but he wasn't looking exactly like a typical chassid or something. He looked like a regular guy. He just goes, what's between you and my dad? How, how much, why does my dad love you so much? Like My dad really constantly talks about you. Like What's so special about you? He goes, not me. It's my wife. My wife, I, and he tells him the whole story. And he goes, because my wife, I did full chuba. So don't look at me like I am, like I look. I study Torah every day because of your father. I keep all the mitzvot. I still look the way I look, but I keep everything. Because of your dad. Why? Because your dad's the first rabbi I ever saw was a real rabbi. He didn't care about the money. We canceled the entire plan. He didn't care. All he cared about is me, like me and my wife doing chuba. All the rich people, can't. everything canceled. I canceled. I got mad. But after I thought about it, he's the only guy that cared. Why? He cared about my soul, not my money. You understand? So, that's being righteous. Same so people who wants to share the cost of butter with me or who wants to do a mitzvah and take me to the store, no one's being saved at the time of Mashiach for taking anybody to the store. So, the Chazal interprets the verse in Shema Yisrael, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And the first thing that we learn here is that, and you love God. You love God. So, the uh, Tiferet Yisrael says that how can you actually show Hashem that you love Him? What do you tell him, Hashem, I love you? There's plenty of people that dance immodestly on stage telling Hashem, we love you. There's plenty of people that are, while they're doing barbecue on Shabbat saying, Hashem, we love you. They sing songs, mamash. They're songs with lyrics and of how much they love Hashem while they're desecrating His name in public. I'm sure there's plenty of these people that go to the great uh, gay pride parades that Hashem is considering disgusting and a act of chilul Hashem. That say we love Hashem. They even wear a kippah with a rainbow, which is a symbol of their homosexuality. But if you ask them, do you love Hashem? They say, yeah, I love Hashem. What's the, what's the question? Why are you asking? They love Hashem. So the question is, 
how do we really show Hashem we love Him? Well, like we said, Hashem has a firstborn child, that's Israel, it's Am Israel, but He has the ones that are the best of the best. The best of the best. And the best of the best, the sages, told us exactly how do you show Hashem that you love Him? By causing other people to love Him. How do you cause other people to love God? By you yourself living such an exemplary life in all areas where they want to be like you and how you have a relationship with Hashem. You are not angry. I want to be not angry. You are confident. I want to be confident. You are happy. I want to be happy. You are all these good things. You're generous. I want to be generous. How did you do it? Well, you were born this way? No, I was born of a shah. I was born like all of you with just Yetzirah. When a person is born, they don't have Yetzirah Tov, Yetzirah. They don't have Yetzirah. They only get Yetzirah Tov at the Bar Mitzvah or Bat Mitzvah. That's why the Yetzirah is always stronger because he's older, he's more experienced. So you're born Ra. So how'd you become good? How do you do this? How do you do that? Hashem, He taught you? Yeah, He gave me a Torah. I read it. I did it. One, two, three. Everything is good. Oh, I want to do that. That's good. That's loving Hashem. That's loving Hashem. Why? You make other people love Him. You make other people love Him by living a life like that. That's loving Hashem. Now, if you notice... In Parashat Vayetchanan, this very same place that everybody keeps mentioning every time we talk about Yirat Shamayim, fear of Hashem, is at least one or two people that send me an email. But yeah, you always talk about fear of Hashem, fear of Hashem, but I always remember in Shema Yisrael, it says love Hashem. So why do we repeat love Hashem every day, at least twice a day, and you're saying fear Hashem all the time? So this is one of the best chidushim that I've had in a long time, that can show you something very simple. Now obviously, the Torah didn't start with Shema Yisrael. This is just a verse inside a parasha. Which parasha? Parashat Vayetchanan. Now this is chapter 6, verse 4, and 5, and so on. But if you look at before it, before, you, before we say Shema Yisrael, we look at the context of what's being talked about. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us in chapter 5, just a few verses before it. Chapter 5, verse 26. Hashem is saying, who can assure that his heart should remain theirs to fear me and to observe all of my commandments all of their days so that it should be good for them and their children forever? Hashem is telling them, who can be so sure if they don't go my way? But if they fear me and observe my mitzvot, they'll have endless benefit for them and for their children in so many words. He doesn't say love me. Says Why Yir'auti? 
You go to fast forward to from 26 to 28. Again, why? Call a mitzvah mishpatim. This is you. If you follow all of the mitzvot, the laws, the judgments, you won't have any problem. You fast forward to verse 30. A few, again, a few lines. If you look at this, it's all on one page. Don't move right or left. Meaning that once you have fear of me, you're going to follow my mitzvot. Once you have my mitzvot, you become based with a foundation of fear. You're not going to move right or left. You're not going to start creating your own religion. You're not going to start doing anything else. You have a good foundation. You fast forward to chapter 6, the first very same chapter that we have, the Shema Yisrael. It starts with verse 1. It doesn't start with verse 5. It starts with verse 1. It says, Lelamed. These are the commandments, the decrees, the ordinances that Hashem, your God, commanded you to teach and to perform. So here, we've escalated another level. Now it's our job to publicize it, to teach it. In the next verse says, Why? Because you're going to fear Hashem. Again, it mentions fearing Hashem. And you're going to teach these mitzvot to benecha or ben benecha. You're going to teach these mitzvot for your son, to the son of your son. You're going to teach these mitzvot to your sons and generation after generation. And this will make you have a long life. Meaning you'll have olam haba. And then only after that, it says, ve'after Hashem elokecha. So here, the Chidush, to summarize everything we just said, is first Hashem says, without having Yirah, you can't be sure of anything. First have a foundation of Yirat Shemaim. If you have Yirat Shemaim, then you're going to fulfill my mitzvot, my laws, my ordinances, and you're not going to go right or left. You're not going to create new laws to please people. You're not going to tell people, listen, this is allowed even though Chazal says no. This is allowed, this is even... You're not going to make anything like this. You're not going to go right or left. What it says is what it says. And after that, you're going to start teaching it. Teaching it to your wife, teaching it to your husband, teaching it to your kids, teaching it to your neighbors, teaching it to your friends, even teaching your enemies if you can. And because, why are you teaching it? You're teaching it because you have a foundation of Yirat Shamayim. You have a foundation of real connection with Hashem. You, but now you've gone to a second Yirat. This is the second time in a matter of a few verses it mentions Yirat Shamayim. Why? The first Yirat is fear of punishment. It's the lowest level of fear is punishment. The second time it mentions Yirat, now we've gone after we've fulfilled the mitzvot, after we've gone to a point where we're not going right or left, after we've gone to a point where we're teaching it to everyone we can, now we've gone to the next level. What's the next level? Yirat HaRomimut. We are fear of His Majesty. Highest level of Yirat Shamayim. Once you've gone to the highest level of Yirat Shamayim, then you'll be able to teach it to your son and your grandson. And you're gonna, this is going to give you Olam Abba. And now you could be sure that I could say you're considered my lover. Then you could say Shema Yisrael. Then you could say Ve'avta Tashem Elokecha because you really loved me.
Why? You fulfilled my Torah. You didn't just sing a song on stage. You didn't just make a music video. You fulfilled it. That's how you get to a Vafta, Tashem Elokecha. It's not just a uh, start Vafta. You don't get Vafta. Like we said, Chazal explains, lowest level of fear of Hashem is basic. Basic level is fear of punishment. Highest level of fear of Hashem, which is extraordinary to reach to begin with, Al-Vayalein we reach that level, that's fear of His majesty, fear of His extraordinary, how He created everything, fear of hurting the relationship. And only after you've gone there, then you could say, you're beginning to love Hashem. Beginning to love Him. What's the source? The source is Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, in Parashat Vayera, which means both he saw, to see something, but it's spelled the same way as, and he feared. Vayera means he saw, and also, and he feared. So, after Avram Avinu took his only son, his only real son, Yitzhak Avinu, that he waited for him a hundred years, that Hashem promised him that this son is going to create endless amount of descendants for you. Like the stars. Bring him as a kulban. Kill him. Avraham Avinu hurries up to fulfill the mitzvah. Hashem says, bring my son as a kulban. That's what I do. Why? I fear Hashem. So he brings him as a kulban. And right before he's about to kill him, there's a voice from Shemaim says, don't touch him. Why don't touch him? Now I know you fear Hashem. Not don't touch him because you love me. Not don't touch him because he's a nice guy. Not don't touch him because I didn't mean it. Not don't touch him because it was just joking. No. Because now you passed the test where now I know. Now I know. Not before. Before even though you had 10 other tests. And you passed all the tests with flying colors. You jumped into fire for me. You were willing to die for me multiple times. You did the Brit Milah. You did everything. But now I know you feared me. Now you got to the highest level of fear that could possibly be. Fear of the majesty of Hashem. How do you say fear? Yir'ah. Huh? Yir'ah. Yir'ah. So he says, now I know you fear me. So if Hashem is giving Avraham Avinu, the compliment of all compliments, after he's willing to sacrifice his only son, he's saying, now I know you fear me. This is a level we could aspire to be. So in today's world, when people say, oh, why are you teaching fear? Why are you teaching fear? The simple answer is, I want to be like Avraham Avinu. I want to have the fear that Hashem admires. Where does it say, where does it say that Hashem likes fear? In Gemara. In Gemara, in Masechet Brachot, I believe. Yeah, Masechet Brachot, page 32, I think. Yeah, Masechet Brachot, page 33b. It says, Rabbi Chayna said in the name of Rabbi Shemur Bar Yochai, אין לו להקדוש ברוך הוא בבית גנזיו, אלא האוצר של יראת שמיים. The Holy One blessed is he, 
has nothing in his treasure house other than a store for the merit of Yirat Shemayim, of fear of heaven. Meaning he's all of the treasure, he used to have a, tre- he has a treasure chest, and he says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, I have the greatest treasure. It's called Shabbat. Tell Am Yisrael, I'm going to give it to them. So he took Shabbat out of the treasure. He gave it to us. Now he says, the only thing he has in his treasure chest is the merit for the few that fear him. Anyone that fears him, that's the treasure. Where do we learn it from? We learn it from um, Isaiah chapter 33, 6. Isaiah chapter 33, 6, it says, The fear of Hashem, that is His treasure. That's a verse in the Torah. Chapter 33, verse 6 in Isaiah. So you see here, is that Hashem Himself is saying, That's my treasure. That's what I have. So when someone is teaching against Yirat Shemaim, you're going against God in more than one way. Now, the biggest reason of why people do such a foolish thing is simply because they don't understand the benefits of learning Musar, they don't understand the benefits of Yirat Shemaim, they don't understand the benefits of being close to Hashem. But people are constantly trying to do things to please people more than they try to please Hashem. Such rabbis, such people, are destroying themselves doing that. Now, once in a while, there are men of truth, and emit, that serve as an example for us of what it is to be a Ishamet. Some of the benefits from it and some of the attitude you should have. So, one of the G'dolei Ado, in the time right before the Holocaust, the uh, Rogachova Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Yosef Razin, Rabbi Yosef Ozen, um, he is the one, I've told you guys a story about where uh, he met Einstein for a few minutes and they met in a room for a few minutes and after... A few minutes, Einstein came out of the room, you know, pulling his hair out, saying, with his brain, you can make two Einsteins. With the Rogachover's Rebbe's brain, you can make two Einsteins. So the one that everyone thinks is the smartest person that's lived in any, any recent history, he himself said that the Rogachover Rebbe is more than double him. But one thing that the Rogachover Rebbe was known for was that he was very, very spicy, meaning that he... If you had Torah, you're worth something. You don't have Torah, you're worth zero. Worth not. You don't have Torah, you don't have anything. You're not, you're not, you're not considered a Bria. You're not considered, you're considered pretty much an animal, a beast. Because without Torah, you're, what do you, what's different between you and a cow? That's actually what Shlomo Melech said also. So, he wouldn't hide that opinion. Especially if he saw someone that was a faker, someone that pretended that he knew. So there was one time 
a, uh, one of these Erevrav, one of these fake rabbis, they came and met him, and within a few moments he saw that this Erevrav really doesn't know anything, and he just looks like a Hasid, he looks like a Tzaddik, but in reality he's fooling everybody. And uh, so the Rokachova Rebbe, he says to him, uh, listen, you know, I was just learning this sugya, this whole issue with an Gemara, and uh, I wanted to ask you a question. So the guy psh, already feels better about himself. The Gdola Dol is going to ask me a question? Psh, his, his ego is already here. It just went up through the roof. So he says, listen, there's a whole issue of Kinyan. Kinyan is the actual acquisition. The act of purchase. What is the official act of purchase? Is it you giving the money? What if the money is, you're not giving it? What if you just left it on a table? Is it you giving him in the hand? What if you're purchasing without exchange of money? What if it's goods and so on and so on? There's a whole issue in the Gemara of what's the official purchasing action. So he says, if somebody was purchasing, let's say, a cow. He's purchasing a cow. And uh, the cow didn't just go on its own. Okay, I want to buy the cow. Okay, I'm buying the cow. You said in words that you're buying the cow. But the cow stayed there. So the shepherd, or the guy that's responsible for the cow, hit it, whipped the cow a little bit to make it, you know, move a few steps. And once it moved a few steps in your direction, that's the official purchase. That's what the whole question is about. He says, but I have a philosophical question. I don't have a question about the halacha. I know the halacha. But I have a philo- philosophical question for you. He says, why do you think the cow, after the shepherd whipped it, why did the cow stop? You know, it ran a little bit, a few steps, but then it stopped. Did it stop because it stopped hurting? Or did it stop because it just didn't see you anymore, so it thought you left? So the Erev Rav is saying, listen, for the Rav, to know such a thing, you need to be a shepherd. I'm not a shepherd. I'm a rabbi. And the Rogachov Rabbi is saying, you think I'm asking you like a shepherd? I'm asking you like the cow. <laughs> <laughs> what was this guy's name? Rogachov. R-O-G-A-C-H-O-V-E-R. Rabbi Joseph Rosen, R-O-S-E-N. I'm asking you as if you're the cow. He knows such little Torah, this faker, not considered human. So what happens when someone does know Torah? As you all know, there's the book of Daniel. In Torah, it's one of the 24 books. Daniel was a prophet the holiest man that ever lived, the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin says that if the Mashiach would have come in a generation of Daniel, he would have been the Mashiach. And it uh, happens to be that this very same Gemara in Sanhedrin is one of the Gemarot that the uh, Messianic Chabadniks use as their so-called proof for why their Lubavitcher Rebbe is the uh, Mashiach. I've written her a letter about it showing that it's complete nonsense. 
But needless to say, it's a... Um, just because people today say foolish things doesn't mean that, uh, you know, their Rebbe's actually agreed with them. But by the way, the Rogachov Rebbe was a Chabadnik. He was one of the uh, originals. The real Chabad is very, very, very high. People even today, in today's age, there are some serious people that are Chabad. But unfortunately, there's, I have many bad experiences with the ones that are bad. And in the book of Daniel, the story goes where Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. And the lions do nothing. The lions were starved. Everyone was expecting to see Daniel ripped to pieces. But nothing happens. Instead, all the, the, all the lions stand right next to the prophet Daniel like little puppies. And they play with them. They do nothing. This is such a fascinating thing. And I mean, it continues on for a few days, I believe, that the king was so fascinated at the holiness of Daniel that he took him out and to prove a point, the guy that actually was caused him to be uh, to get thrown in there, he said, okay, let's see, maybe, you know, because the guy was saying, oh, maybe the lions are not hungry. He goes, oh, maybe you're right, so you, we'll take you down there and see if the lions are hungry or not. And they lowered the rasha down and the lions ate him in the middle of the air. They didn't even let his body arrive to the ground. They didn't land. So, this is a few thousand years ago. But this also happened much less time. In the time of the Or Chaim, Or Chaim HaKadosh, just a few hundred years ago, um, he would work just enough to make enough money to survive for the month. And as soon as he got to his quota to survive for the month, whether it took him one day or the entire month, was irrelevant. As soon as he got to exactly how much money he needed, he would stop working and he would study it full-time. So one time, he made all of his money within the first day of the month. Made the money for the month, stopped working, and he started learning. Now the governor of the city he was living in, which in those days governors were much different than governors today. Governors were like kings. The governor of the city he was living in was having a wedding party for his daughter. So uh, he sent someone to Orachaim to say, listen, I need you to sew the dress for my daughter. That's what he did. He would sew. I need you to sew it. And Orachaim said, no, I'm studying now. He says, what do you mean? I'm having the wedding in the next couple of weeks. I need the dress. No, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm studying. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Money meant absolutely nothing to him. Money was purely what it is in reality, which is a tool. He had the tool. He had, the, he had what he needed. There's no reason for him to work any extra. But the governor didn't see it that way. So he sent, he got really angry, and he sent people to take Orachayim and throw him into the lion's den. 
show to the people this is what happens when you go against the governor. Oh, Chaim did not hesitate for a moment. He walked into the lion's den and he started singing Tehillim, Psalms. And all of the starving lions sat down and just looked at him and enjoyed the songs with him. The people watching this from the top, expecting blood and flesh everywhere, have no idea what's happening here. They're seeing a man singing Tehillim, and the lions that have been starved for the last few days are enjoying the song. They're enjoying the Tehillim, they're just acting like little puppies. Immediately they all realized that they were wrong. They called the governor to see it. He saw it. He commanded all everybody to take the holy man out of this lion's den because we know of the story of the prophet Daniel. You know, in those days, even the Goim knew Torah. And they all begged for his forgiveness. So, Orachim said, it's not really such a big deal. Hashem said that this would happen. He goes, what do you mean Hashem said it would happen? He says, he said to Adam Arishon, and your fear and intimidation will be cast upon the beasts of the land. He said to Adam Arishon that because I gave you Tzelem Elohim, I created you in my image, which is a spiritual image, not a physical image. God doesn't have flesh, doesn't have a body, doesn't have an image of a body. It's a spiritual image, if you will. No shape or anything like that. But I gave you something called Tselem Elohim. And that Tselem Elohim, as long as it stays within you, all animals will fear you. And the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 151b, says that no animal, elaborates on what this means, it says that no animal overcomes a person unless he appears to the animal as another animal. If the lion sees a human being that's holy, it looks to him like a human being. It looks to him like Adam Rishon. He's immediately scared. He's immediately scared because this is Adam Rishon. This is this is something holy. This is Tzelem Elokim. This is the image of God here. But if he sees someone that's not holy, to him it looks no different than a zebra. It looks like lunch. So when the starving lions saw the prophet Daniel or or Chaim Akadosh, they saw holiness. They saw kedusha. They were scared. There was no thought in their mind that they would eat something like this. This is Tzelem Elokim. This is where we need to be. This is what we need to aspire to be holy. Now, where do we learn in the Torah to be holy? We learn in Parashat Kedoshim. In Parashat Kedoshim, in Leviticus, 
starts in chapter 19, but specifically in chapter 20, we learn what does it take to be holy. So in the beginning of the parasha, in chapter 19, it says, in order, you have to be holy because I am holy. How do you, what to do, do you need to be holy? First it says, you have to honor your parents, keep Shabbat, know that I'm God, don't idol worship, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Don't use my name in vain. Don't put a trap in front of a blind person, meaning both literally and figuratively speaking. Meaning, if you know that one of your friends is a, uh, let's say, a kleptomaniac, he steals, don't leave a hundred bucks on a table or in a drawer open just to see if he's going to steal it. You already know he has a problem. Don't put a trap in front of him. If you know that somebody used to have a drug problem or alcohol problem, you want to know whether he got over it or not, don't leave fake drugs on a table or, or alcohol on a table just to see if he takes it. And you want to see in the hidden camera just to show that you're smarter than everybody. That's a sin from the Torah. Eating pig is a sin. Doing this is a sin. It tells you instructions of how to be holy. You have to do all these things. You have to watch your mouth, like we talked about in the beginning of the lecture. Don't curse, and so on and so forth. But then later on, towards the latter part of the parasha, it talks about punishment for some of these sins. And in chapter 20, verse 13, it says, a man who lies with a man as one lies with a woman, they have both done an abomination. They shall both be put to death. Their blood is upon themselves. Says two men that act like husband and wife act an act of homosexuality, Hashem, Hashem they have both have committed an act of abomination. Abomination means disgusting. Disgusting in the eyes of the Creator. The punishment is a death penalty, not figuratively speaking, literally. In the times of the Sanhedrin, they would literally kill them. Today, we don't have a Sanhedrin, we don't take the law into our hands. But in the times of the Sanhedrin, they would kill them. Today, they're putting themselves in serious, serious danger. And he says, their blood is upon themselves. What does it mean, the blood is upon themselves? What does it mean, their blood is upon themselves? You killed them, why is the blood upon themselves? Shouldn't be the blood is upon the people that killed them? This is the answer to all of those people that say, well, what if they're born that way? What if somebody's born gay? First and foremost, everyone needs to know 
that yes, there is such a thing as someone having attraction to the same sex, similar to how there is opposite sex. But it doesn't mean they're born gay. It means that they have feminine traits or masculine traits. So a person that is attracted to the same sex will usually have the same traits as that sex. So for example, uh, or traits as the opposite sex. So for example, a man that has a uh, desire for another man, it's usually because he doesn't relate to other men that are normal men. He relates more to women that are more gentle, whereas most men are rough, that are more calm. Most men are not necessarily as calm, and so on and so forth. Soft versus a little harsher, and so on and so forth. This is why you see many of these people that come out of the closet, they don't come out of the closet quietly and in shame and you know keep this their sex life to themselves. They tell the whole world, I am really a woman. I was born a woman. No, you were born a man. You just can't control your evil desires. <clears throat> so here in the Torah, the creator that created you is telling you the blood is upon yourself, meaning it's free choice. Yes, you may have attraction to the same sex. Yes, you may relate to the same sex. Whatever. But it's still a choice. It's still a free choice. Just because you want to do something doesn't mean you should do it. Just because you want to rob a bank doesn't mean you should. Just because you want to kill the guy that cut you off doesn't mean you should. Just because you feel like punching the guy doesn't mean you could or should. It's free will. And this is what separates you from being an animal. An animal has instincts. It doesn't work off of free will. A lion doesn't say, you know what? Let me do my hair first and then I'm going to run after the giraffe. Because I want to look good in the camera for National Geographics. I want to look good. So let me do my hair first. Cameraman, hold on one second. Let me do my hair. I want to, you know, want this thing to really be puffy. I want it to really be puffy so National Geographic gets the real, real lion. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't get up to the giraffe. He's like, hey, giraffe, listen, I know I caught you and everything, but it's okay that I'm going to eat you, right? It's all right, right? Like you're, you told your parents and everybody goodbye and everything. It's good. Like it doesn't, that stuff doesn't happen. The lion doesn't go on a diet. He says, you know what, guys, I'm getting a little bit, a little heavy with my age, so I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go after this giraffe. I'm going to go after a little mm-hmm. kangaroo instead. I'm trying to cut some weight. That stuff doesn't happen in the lion's world because the lion is working off of instinct. You can't get mad at the shark for biting the seal. That's what he does. That's what they do. You can't get upset at a snake that eats a mouse. Even though the mouse may look cute in your eyes, that's what they eat. doesn't matter that you like them or you disagree with it or it looks vicious or whatever. That's the world. That's it. So, Hashem created the world with a certain system. The animals 
work off of instincts. Humans have two advantages. One, they're, they have free choice. They can choose to do and not to do. Second option, the second advantage is that they have the ability to speak. So, when you have a certain desire, you have a choice of whether to express that desire or not. In today's world, because we have people that are constantly trying to make people happy instead of Hashem happy, which is the opposite of what is the Mishnah is telling us. This Mishnah is telling us that if you are going to make Hashem happy, the world around you will be happy as a result of it. But if your only focus is going to be to make people happy, not only will they not be happy ultimately, but you're going to make Hashem, your creator, unhappy. So here, he's telling you that this is one of the ways that's happening. People are constantly trying to rationalize, humanize, and do all types of other modernizations to the Torah and saying, no, listen, homosexuality may be this, may be that. No, there's one law. It's not allowed. And to even show someone it's not allowed, the same verse that talks about it says it's free choice. The blood is upon you, meaning the blood, the only reason why you're dead is because you chose to be. You chose to violate the Torah. That's why the blood is on your hand. It's considered as you killed yourself, not no one killed you. And to show you the level of disgust that Hashem has for it, aside from calling it an abomination, which literally means disgusting, every time the sin of homosexuality is mentioned in the Torah, every time, it's right next to the sin of bestiality. The sin of a man or a woman with an animal. Because to, to Hashem, it's the same thing. A homosexual behavior is the same thing as bestiality. Why? Because just like the beast doesn't have free choice and acted like a beast, you acted like a beast. So when you committed the sin with the same sex or with an animal, it's the same thing. Either way, you're an animal. So now, this is in the eyes of Hashem, this is in the eyes of the Torah, there is no other way around it. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that we hate them, that uh, you're, it's a mitzvah to beat them up, if somebody's homosexual, or to insult them, or to abuse them, that not, we're not saying that. What we are saying is what God said, which is that it's a major, major sin. Now, how do you get out of this sin? How do you get out of this sin? How do you stop sinning? When someone has a desire for the same sex, it's not something that goes away like a uh, uh, headache. You can't just take a pill for it and it stops. It doesn't just stop. You can't just stop desiring the same sex. You can't just stop having nervous breakdowns every time you see your ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or whatever it is. It's not an easy thing. It's not. So just like we learn how to be holy from the parasha 
that has the name holy, which is Parashat Kedoshim, we also learn how to stop from the Rambam, the part that's also called holy, Sefer Kedusha. In Sefer Kedusha, the Rambam in a Ilchot uh, Esure we went over this in previous Shurim, but it's still worthwhile to go over it again. All of these alachot are not just alachot of things to do because, you know, just to make mitzvot like uh, wash your hands or eat kosher. This is also a strategy of how to live life, how to fix your midot, how to fix your character traits, how to fulfill the will of Hashem, how to develop your character traits, how to be a better person, how to overcome your negative desires, and so on and so forth. This is not just yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So this entire chapter, chapter 22, in Ilchot Esurebea, is all about intimacy and the sins of Arayot, which is sex crimes. And he says, the second halacha, in his time, Jewish men were not suspected of engaging in relations with men or with animals. Hence, there was no prohibition against entering into the privacy with them. So, the Shulchan Aruch, Ebn Ezer, writes that homosexuality has become prevalent in this community, and hence it's deemed appropriate not to enter into privacy with other men. The Bait Chadash states that in places where this transgression is not widespread, there's no need for taking this precaution. So first and foremost, we see something drastic. 900 years ago, at the time the Rambam wrote this, he says in his time, there's no issue of homosexuality. So men being in close with another man, it's not a problem. One Jewish man, another Jewish man. There's no problem of them, you know, sleeping in the same room or even in the same bed. Because the issue of homosexuality in his day was not something that was a problem. Only 400 years later, the Shulchan Aruch was written. It says, no, times have changed. We can't consider this to be true anymore because the times have changed. This is 500 years ago. There is homosexuality even unfortunately amongst Jewish people. So there's an halacha. You can't just be in a sleep in the same bed as another man like we did in the time that the Rambam wrote what he wrote. In those times they would, you know, they wouldn't sleep with pajamas. Point being is that, you know, people had one outfit. But they wouldn't sleep with it and, you know. Amevin yavin. So now, the, here we have a major change. Major change. A major change of how we've lowered just in a few hundred years. But this is 500 years ago. If the Rambam was alive today, or even if the Rabbi Yosef Kaur, the writer of the Shulchan Aruch, was alive, alive today, he thinks that he would, he would think he came to Gainom. He wouldn't even think this is the world. 
Because in today's world, it's not that there is once in a while certain neighborhoods have people that are homosexuals. No, there are parades. There's parades, Hashem and Achim. They're proud of it. They're proud of showing the world what's happening in their bedroom. It's acceptable behavior. So, before we get to the next point, the next couple of halachot in halacha 18, he says that there's nothing in the Torah that's more difficult for the majority of people than to separate themselves from their sexual misconduct and forbidden relationships. As our sages said in Masechet Shabbat, page 130, when the Jews were commanded regarding forbidden sexual relations, they wept and accepted this mitzvah with complaints and moaning. As implied by the phrase, crying amongst the families, which is interpreted as meaning crying about family matters. So the Rambam outright tells you, listen, just because I was 900 years ago, doesn't mean I don't know what I'm talking about. I know it's hard. As a matter of fact, I know much more than you that's having a difficulty with it. It's actually going to be the hardest thing in the world for you to overcome. To overcome your sexual desires that are not allowed not being allowed to waste seed, not being allowed to be with a woman that's not your wife, not being allowed to be with the same sex, not to be allowed a shimachem with, a, with a, uh, uh, an animal, all these forbidden relationships, not even being allowed to be with your sister, your mother, all of these forbidden relationships, if you have that instilled desire in you, you were given that test from Shemaim, that's your tikkun. That is going to be the hardest thing in the world for you to overcome. But Hashem promised something. Hashem promised us something that every single Jew needs to know this. Everyone needs to know it, but especially the ones that are having a very, very difficult time. In Parashat Vaikra, in... Uh, the same parasha that we just talked about with Avram Avinu had to bring his son as a korban. The parasha of the Akedat Yitzchak, the Ramban, with the N, says, why did Hashem give Avram Avinu such a big test? I mean, he almost killed his son. If he would have killed his son, there's no army say You wouldn't have had it. There's no, I mean, just kill the son. What if he, like, didn't hear or, I don't know, something? The Ramban says, from here we learn that Hashem does not give a person a test that he can't pass. There's no such thing as Hashem giving you a test you cannot pass. Whether it's a test with parnasah or a test with homosexuality, disease, whatever. 
There's no such thing as a test that Hashem gives you, you can't pass. We learn this from Avraham Avinu. He was given the ultimate test. What is it? Kill your only son. And contradict everything you've learned until this point. Because Hashem has been telling you all this time, tell all of these idol worship to stop killing their kids for their false gods. Because the only God, the real God, doesn't want anyone to kill kids or anyone for him. So here I'm telling you to kill your kid. It's contradicting your entire knowledge base. And the Ramban says, from here we learn there's no such thing as Hashem giving you a test you can't pass. No such thing. So now, when we go back to Rambam, and he says this test, this sexual desire that you have, whether it be wasting seed addiction, which unfortunately many Bahurim and Yeshivot have. Because no one's ever taught of the significance of the sin. Or the level of addiction you can get to as a teenager. As a male that becomes addicted to wasting seed, it seems almost impossible to overcome it. As a man that's addicted to sex in general, it seems like it's impossible to overcome it. There are people that actually go to doctors and psychiatrists, they call them sex therapists, to help them stop being as promiscuous as they are. But the reality is that none of these sex therapists will ever heal them. Ever. None of these psychiatrists will ever heal them. None of them, ever. There's only one solution. There's only one solution to the biggest addiction in the world. The Rambam says that Hashem created a body only because He wanted us to reproduce and populate the world. If there was no desire by Hashem for us to repopulate the world and bring children to the world, there would be no purpose for the body. Because everything else that we wanted, that we need to do, we could do without a body. You can learn to all without a body. You don't need a body. The only reason for your being of having a body is to have seed. And for the woman to carry a baby. So in essence, the purpose of this body is for sexual sexuality. That's the, re- that's the reason why it's easy to get addicted to it. That's why it's created for. But when you overuse it, misuse it, and use it just inappropriately, you're breaking the system. This is why in Judaism there's a time that you're allowed to be with your wife, there's a time you're not allowed to be with your wife. Based on the time of the month that she has, Based on purity, she can't be nida. So approximately almost half the month you're allowed, almost half the month you're not allowed. A little less than half the month you're not allowed. And also during times like after pregnancy and so on, there are times, there's specific times that Hashem said you're allowed, specific times that you're not allowed. All of these rules have endless benefits. One of the benefits is to keep that animalistic behavior under control. 
But the Rambam is telling us clearly that it's literally almost impossible to overcome it. Our sages say, a person's soul, des- soul desires and craves theft and forbidden sexual relationships. You will never find a community that does not have some people who are promiscuous regarding forbidden relationships and prohibited sexual conduct. If you notice, the one thing that all, all, with no exception, with no exception whatsoever, no one can debate me on this. All homosexual people have in common is they're all very promiscuous. No one is discreet. Everyone is open about their sexuality. Everyone needs people to know that they're a homosexual or they're a lesbian. Hi, I'm John and I'm a homosexual and I'm proud to be gay. And this is like they have gay parades. Why don't they have straight parades? The majority of the world is straight. Why don't you have a parade for straight people? Why is only the homosexual having parades? Why does only the homosexual feel the need to tell you that he's a homosexual? Why does the homosexual always think you're also a homosexual? Did you ever notice that, that all homosexuals think that everyone else is also homosexual? Yeah, you're just in the closet. You don't know it yet. No, this is a reality. I'm not saying this because I'm making fun. This, I know people that are homosexuals. When I was young, I used to be obviously not religious. I would go to clubs, and in clubs, what do you have? You don't have tzaddikim in clubs. Half the guys are gay, the other half are coked up, and there's a bunch of girls. You get to meet the filth of the world. So you get people, listen, they, they seemed nice to me at the time. Until they asked me to be their boyfriend. I'm like, hey, guy, I just went to a club. I'm not, what's wrong with you? But all of them felt the need to tell every guy they would see. If he's married, if he has a girlfriend, if he this, it doesn't make a difference. They feel like everyone needs to be like them. And if you listen to that garbage lecture that Dweck made, he said the same thing which makes me question his sexuality. He says, if you don't feel attraction to the same sex, there's something wrong with you. Only a homosexual would say such a thing. Because a normal person that doesn't have that desire, they may have many other desires. They may have a desire to waste seed, to women, to drugs, to a million other things. They have a bunch of other problems, but they don't have that problem. doesn't have a desire for the same sex. It's absolutely normal not to have a desire for the same sex. Hence, the majority of the world. Whatever it is, the point is, is that it's a very, very strange thing to say, needless to say, from a rabbi, who was a dayan. Who's a this and a, supposed to be a Talmud Chacham and all that stuff? Obviously, you see there's something wrong. There's something wrong in the in the in ingredients here. 
There's something wrong in the cooking. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't taste good. There's something wrong here. When, when, let me finish the point. When you see that the people that are homosexuals are expressing their bedroom secrets to the world, you start understanding why Hashem calls it an abomination. Because it's not just the act, but it's the publicity. It's the chutzpah. That you're not only going against God, you're publicizing it. You're proud of it. Why do they have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year olds people in these gay parades, Hashem and Achem, and they're all dancing like they're in a club. They're all wearing almost nothing. Some of them are wearing women's clothes, some are wearing almost no clothes. All of them are acting like mamash, like beasts. To show the world what happens in their bedroom. Listen, you have that desire, you have that problem. That's your problem. Keep it at home. Why do I need to know about it? Do I tell you about what happens between me and my life and my wife? Do you see every normal straight person saying to the world, Hey guys, we just had kids. Do you know what? Do you want to know how? Do you know that in the Torah, actually in the Gemara, it says that if, if people go, just for thinking, if people go to a wedding, everyone knows what happens between the, the bride and groom after the wedding. But if anyone dares to say it, they get cursed from heaven. Because as Jews, we have an obligation to be holy. Holy. Holy means not just giving tzedakah. Holy means not just learning from books. Holy means not just looking a certain way. Holy means what you're doing, how you're acting in public and in private. Now, when you see that someone is publicly immodest, publicly showing what's, ha- what's happening in the, behind closed doors, it's very easy to, under- easy to understand why Hashem is so harsh. Because you're not only going against them, you're advertising, you're putting a billboard, I am an enemy of Hashem. For anyone who has the problem, first and foremost, know this. It's just a desire. Rambam says it's a very strong desire. But needless to say, it is a desire. The Ramban explained what a desire means. It means that it's part of your free choice. It's what distinguishes between you and an animal. You being holy 
or not holy. He won't give you a test you can't pass, even if it's hard. All of us have had hard tests in our life. All of us will probably continue to have different tests in our life. There's no such thing as no tests. Some are harder, some are easier. But the way you become holy is through difficulty. <clears throat> Moshe Rabbeinu didn't become Moshe Rabbeinu by going to the Bahamas on vacation. Avram Avinu didn't become Avram Avinu by going on retirement at the age of 35 because he made a few million bucks from Google. Yaakov Avinu didn't become holy because he just had too much money and nothing to do with it. Everyone went through tests. The entire nation of Israel went through a test together. We were all slaves. We've all been killed. We've all been beat up. We've all been persecuted. The test never ended. Just like the souls are reincarnated until they complete the test, the tests themselves keep reincarnating. Just in a more modernized way. Paul Rasha had a holocaust in his day. Haman had a, tried having a holocaust. Hitler and Machshimo had a holocaust. And Gogu Magog is going to try also. The point being is that the only thing that can help us is the one above. We can't get to holy without these tests. And the Rambam says here, therefore it's proper for a person to subjugate his natural inclination with regards to this matter and train himself in extra holiness, pure thought, proper character traits, meaning work on his Musar on his character trait, character development, so that he will be guarded against them. He should be very careful with regards to entering into privacy with a man or a woman, for this is a great cause of transgression. Our great sages would tell their students, watch me because of my daughter. Watch me because of my daughter-in-law. So that they would teach their students not to be embarrassed about such matters and distance themselves from entering into privacy with women. Said so even though obviously the great sages did not have a desire to be with their daughters or daughter-in-laws, they would say to their students, just watch me because my daughter is here, to make sure their students understood that if they have a similar problem, even if it's with their same family or anyone else that they're not allowed to, don't ever feel embarrassed by having somebody just be the guy that sees, oversees you. Be the gate around the gate. The sages were instilled with a power by Hashem Barach to put a gate around his gate. Meaning that he has laws, but he told us, put laws around them because violating my laws is a really serious problem. The Gemara says that the Genom has horrible, horrible punishments. It's terrible. It's, you don't want to know. The worst thing you could possibly imagine is not even 1% of it. It says that the fire here, the hottest possible fire in this world, is not even a 60th of the fire there. 
a sixtieth. Meaning, take the biggest fire you have here, times it by sixty. We can't imagine things like this. The sun is not that much. So, he says, violating my law, it's a serious problem. So, make sure you put something that not only will you not violate my law, but you put something else, make it also be a law. So, if they violate your law, it's not good, but it's at least not violating my law. Example, in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, I believe it's the uh, 13 or 14, it says that in the old days they would put the korban tuma, one of the types of korbanot, in the same holy closet as a sefer Torah. Because the korban was holy, and the sefer Torah was holy. They said holy next to holy. Even though the korban is pieces of flesh, it's pieces of meat, but it's holy. It's going to be put as a korban, as a sacrifice for Hashem. It's not just a piece, it's not steaks to, to go eat and uh, put some ketchup and french fries. It's a korban for Hashem. So this is something holy. Hard for us to understand because we don't have korbanot anymore. We don't see the miracles that happen with korbanot. Fire comes from the sky. The Levites sing. They make everyone cry. Everybody does tshuva on the spot. It's uh, Many, many miracles happen with the korbanot. The smoke goes all the way up to the sky as a pillar where even if there's strong wind, it doesn't move. Many, many miracles happened every day was miracles in the Bet HaMikdash. It's very hard for us in this modernized world to understand the significance of Korbanot. But needless to say, one of the practices that they used to have is putting the Korban Tuma in the same closet, like you go to Beknesset, you have Sefer Torah, you have Korban. Very normal. They said, this is holy, that's holy. Just like Chizkiyahu, Amelech, when he was buried, he was buried with a Sefer Torah. He was buried with a Sefer Torah. Now, you're not allowed to do this now. But they said, no, him and the Sefer Torah, same thing. He was that holy. They said, Chizkiyahu, the Sefer Torah, the same thing. If he's gone, Sefer Torah is gone. To that extent. So, one day the, the sages saw, listen, the problem is that when we put the korbanot in the closet, the mice come because of the meat and they end up ruining the Sefer Torah. They continue eating, they eat the Sefer Torah. They ruin the Sefer Torah, desecrate the Sefer Torah. Now if we tell people, listen, they're ruining the Sefer Torah, it's not going to be good enough. Why? People are just not going to get it. They say, no, build a different uh, closet, Build more protection, put this, put a, you know, they'll tell you different ways around it. The sages were instilled with genius where they knew it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to say there's a new decree that if the Sefer Torah touches the Korban, it makes it impure. It's not true. It doesn't make it impure. But we're going to say it is. Why? Because it causes it to be impure. Because it's ruining the Sefer Torah. So once we tell them this new halacha, we're not allowed to put the Korban and the Sefer Torah in the same closet, and we solve the problem. Here the sages are showing us, this is one simple example of the gate around the gate, the fence around the fence, is that they had to make it hard. Why? Because the only way we're going to listen. 
We're only going to listen if it's difficult. If there's a risk. You're only going to keep Shabbat if you know that if you don't keep Shabbat, you lose eternity. Which is actually what it says. But if you tell people, listen, you should keep Shabbat because it's nice. You should keep Shabbat because it's good for you. You should keep Shabbat because it's uh, good for the family. Nine out of ten people are not going to keep Shabbat. This is why sometimes these organizations, they have these huge seminars. They invite a bunch of people to these seminars for free. And it sounds interesting. They, uh, only she got it. Uh, they, <laughs> they uh, invite a bunch of people to these seminars. People sponsor it. It costs tens of thousands of dollars. They have these rabbis speak one after another, one after another, one after another. And nine out of ten times, most people don't do anything. Okay, maybe they're going to light Shabbos candles. Maybe they're going to eat some more kosher. But as far as major life change, to study, start studying Torah every day, keep the mitzvot, decide that it's time to really seriously change, nine out of ten times it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Why? There's no... Why? Why should I do it? Okay, it sounds nice, but if, unless you're going to pay for every one of my Shabbats to be a vacation like the one you invited me to, why would I do it? Why? Because I don't know the price. I don't know that if I don't keep Shabbat, Hashem doesn't consider me part of Am Yisrael. I don't know that if I don't keep Shabbat, if I touch wine that's uncooked, a righteous Jew has to throw that wine out. If I say a bracha, if I say Kaddish, no one's allowed to say Amen. If I'm used as a witness to some type of Jewish ceremony, the ceremony is not valid. Serious, serious problems. Now, if I don't know those things, if I don't know those things, if I don't know that the significance of desecrating Shabbat, the significance of being with a non-Jew, the significance of eating non-kosher, the significance of being angry, the significance of going against Hashem on a regular basis and desecrating His name like being a homosexual in public. The significance of all these things, if I don't know the price of all of it, why would I change? So many of these organizations that have these get-togethers and so on, it's fun times, but the vast majority of people don't change. They just went to a vacation and they can't wait for you to invite them again next year. But they don't change. Because you still never told them the price. So, when someone is telling you that they have a serious problem, it's not just a small problem like not eating kosher. They have a problem with the number one most difficult thing to overcome. They have a sexual desire that's forbidden. And you tell them, no, maybe you should stop. Or maybe I'm going to introduce you to a nice girl. They're going to think you're, you're, there's something wrong with you. You're not helping. As a matter of fact, it's actually hurting them more than it's helping them. The Rambam already told you it's difficult to overcome. 
He's telling you that even the sages would to put protective measures on themselves. Not for homosexuality, but for forbidden sexual relations. Just to make their students feel more comfortable. But now at the end of Yisurei Be'ah, he gives you the solution. How do you overcome it? Similarly, a person should distance himself from levity, intoxication, and flirtation. Translation is that he should distance himself from things that are triggers. You can't be next to your ex-boyfriend. You can't be next to your ex-girlfriend that's not allowed to you. You can't be next to things that trigger you. If you are a former drug addict, you're not going to hang out with a bunch of guys that are drug addicts. If you are a former alcoholic, you're not going to go to a party that's going to serve alcohol. If you have homosexuality problems, you can't go you know, to nightclubs or places where you used to go where there's a bunch of homosexuals or even hang out with those people. You can't stay friends with your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend. It's the end. It's either Hashem or Gainom. Choose. So, first and foremost, he tells you stay away from the triggers. Stay away from tzchok, meaning joking around. Why? Joking around leads to promiscuity. Stay away from flirtations. Flirtation leads to promiscuity. For they are great precipitators and steps leading to forbidden relations. A man should not live without a wife. For having a wife leads to great purity. So first and foremost, he tells you, listen, you need to get married. You can't say, no, no, let me get over this problem, be by myself for five, ten years, and then... I'll find a wife. No, my friend. You're not going to get over all this problem by yourself. You need both physical and emotional support. You have to do everything you can to make your neshama and body holy. One of the ways you make your neshama and body holy is learning Torah. Another way is actually being with your wife. In Judaism, unlike Christianity, it's actually considered holy to be with your wife in a permissible way. Our sages gave even greater advice, saying in Gemara Masechet Kedushim, page 30b, a person should always turn himself and his thoughts to the words of the Torah and expand his knowledge and wisdom. For the thoughts of forbidden relations grow strong solely in the heart which is empty of wisdom. And King Solomon's words in Proverbs 5.19, it's written, 
It is a beloved hind, arousing favor. Her breast will satisfy you at all times. You shall be obsessed with her love. Blessed be God who grants assistance. So here, obviously it's a little difficult to understand the reading um, literally, right, in a different language than we do. But point being is that he's telling you in a simple way is that the only way that you can actually overcome this desire is if you instill your mind with divrei chokhmah. You instill your mind with wisdom. What is wisdom? We learn from our sages, wisdom is Torah. Why? Because the only minds that look for things that are not allowed are empty minds. If your mind is bored, you're looking for something to do. Who may, who's promiscuous? Someone that's bored. Who is someone that's constantly, you know, looking for more action? Who's an action junkie? Someone that's bored with their life, mentally bored. He says, when you actually fulfill the Torah, learn the Torah, instill it in your life, you can never be bored. If you're just learning Torah like it's a math book, like it's a history book, it's not going to do anything for you. It's not going to do anything for you. Why? Because you're learning about Moshe Rabbeinu, just like Hashem Echem, you learn about Harry Potter. Like a story. But if you're learning Torah as if you're reading an instruction set. A few days ago I had to build my daughter a little new bicycle that my brother and his wife bought her for a birthday. And it was, I don't know, 10, 15 steps. Now, if I, instead of going to step one, I went from step one to step seven, would the bike be safe to ride? Probably not, right? Because no. every single step counts. Sure. Same thing here. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa already told us what the steps are. Two weeks ago he told us, first and foremost know that the foundation of Torah must be Yirat Shemayim. That's step number one. Two, you're learning Torah to fulfill it, not to just be theoretical. Oh, this is nice, that's nice, but maybe he meant this, but maybe he meant that. Great, either way you got to keep Shabbat. Yeah, but maybe he meant something else. doesn't make a difference. What it says, you have to keep Shabbat. Yeah, but maybe we should wait until we understand the entire Torah before we fulfill it. No, no, no. You have to do and then... You have to listen, then do. I mean, you have to do, then listen. Like Ami said, so, Rabbi Hanan Bendoza told you, Yirat Shemaim Foundation. Do what you're learning. Make sure that you listen to the Allah of the Rambam, and he says that in order for you to actually instill this, in order for you to overcome this desire, you have to work on your character traits. And there's only one way to work on your character traits in an effective way. By challenging yourself to fulfill the will of Hashem. Doing things that are not easy. Doing things that are more difficult 
So when I tell people, listen, that have, well, let's say, for example, somebody has a uh, problem with wasting seed. Unfortunately, many men have this problem. Young and old, they have a problem with wasting seed. So I asked them, why was Rabbi Yudan Nasi called Rabbi Kadosh? Why? Why was Yosef a tzaddik, one of the 12 tribes, the only one that was called Yosef a tzaddik? Why wasn't Yehuda called Yehuda a tzaddik? Or Naftali a tzaddik? Or Dan a tzaddik? Why was Yosef called a tzaddik? Because Yosef didn't waste seed. Why was Rabbi Yehuda Nasi called Rabbi Yehuda as Rabbi Kadosh? Why wasn't Rabbi Akiva called Rabbi Kadosh? Why wasn't Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai called Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Akadosh? Why was Rabbi called Akadosh? Because Rabbi protected his breed to such an extent that his entire life he never looked below his waist belt. His entire life he never looked there. We think it's normal to look at ourselves. Sometimes you stand in front of a mirror thinking, oh, you're like, admire the creation. Little kids love to stand naked in front of a, 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 a mirror. Adults stay the same. You look at yourself. But you want to be holy? You can't look at yourself. Why? Leads you to sin. So you ask yourself, how do you go to the bathroom? You go to the bathroom. You don't need to look to go to the bathroom. You know where it is. But not only did he do that, he never touched it either. He would do it in a certain way. He would have his pants in a certain way. We would never need to touch himself, ever. Why? Chas v'shalom, he would sin. That's Kadosh. Now, we're not at the level of Rebbe Kadosh, but there are certain things you can do. You're not completely incapable. You don't have to look at it. You don't have to touch it. There's plenty of things you can do. It takes some getting used to, but you can do it. Depends if you want to be Kadosh or not. You don't want to be Kadosh, disregard the entire lecture. You don't want Ganeden, don't attend anymore. But you want to be holy, you want Ganeden, you want Olam Abba, you have to try at least to be Kadosh. And it doesn't matter where you stand, it doesn't matter whether it's a desire that's a sexual desire for the same sex or the opposite sex. The point is, it's the same map. Both of you need to try to be holy and as holy as you can possibly be. Because that's the only way you can get yourself from where you are to where you're trying to be. So first and foremost, protect yourself physically. Seeing, touching, and so on. Second of all, Never have an empty mind. Never get to a point where you haven't learned Torah for a day. Because if you stop learning Torah for a day, immediately creates a blind spot. Immediately it creates an opening in your mind for what? For all the garbage that's out there to come in. Because everything that comes in, something has to leave. So if you're not 
bringing in Torah, something else has to be coming in. Which leads to the Torah leaving. You are little by little creating an empty spot. You're little by little filling this void with garbage, with manure. With spiritual manure, and this is what leads people to sexual sins. It's not a great mystery. So, the instructions are very simple. Protect yourself physically. Protect yourself spiritually. Learn Torah. But the last part that he tells us here, Rabbi Chayna ben Dosa, is know this. If you do the will of Hashem, the world around you will smile at you. Because Hashem will instill chen in you where the world around you would want to be like you. All the people that told you, hey, you're crazy doing tshuva, you're too fanatic, you're too this, you're too that. When one of these people loses money, loses health, has problems, they're going to come to you for a blessing. They're not going to come to the guys they met at the club for a blessing. They're not going to come to the woman that's walking around half naked asking her to pray for them. They're not. When people have problems, they go to holy people. Even if they're idol worshippers, they go find holy people. Everyone knows it's very easy to identify the holy person. Why? The holy person looks different than everybody else. He operates on a different tune. He doesn't care about this world. He cares about him. That's his compass. So, if you take all of these things into account, you realize that כל אדם שיש בו יראת שמיים, דבריו נשמעים. שנאמר, סוף דבר הכל נשמע ואת האלוקים יראה. Every person that has יראת שמיים, the things that come out of his mouth will be fulfilled. This can mean a couple of things. Number one, it can mean if you're teaching, you're a rabbi, you don't need to try to please the crowd by telling them things that are against the Torah. If you have Yirat Shamaim, they're going to take what you say. They're going to take what you say. They're going to believe you. They're going to follow it. Even though if it's difficult. Because they know it's coming from the heart. But aside from that, it could also mean that everything that he says is heard also in Shamaim. You pray because you have problems, the door is wide open. Sicknesses, money issues, anything and everything. You do what Hashem says, you'll have Yirat Shemaim. You have Yirat Shemaim, your prayers will be answered. No Yirat Shemaim, 50 50 chance. Here is a guaranteed way to get your prayers answered. Have Yirat Shemaim. So, this is a very, very Simple thing to say, difficult thing to do. But again, at the very least, whoever has a serious problem, keep it at home. Don't tell the world that you have this problem 
because you can see that even through this problem, Hashem is running the world and He is telling you it is a problem. And I'll explain to you guys how. Rabbi Yisrael Misalant said that in his time almost 200 years ago, there were more doctors than there were sicknesses. <clears throat> Meaning there's so many doctors, professional doctors, there's no shortage of them. But he said, but the only thing that we really have as a sickness is a spiritual sickness. And for that, there's no doctors. There's too much sickness, spiritual sickness, but there's no doctors. Why? Because most people don't know that they're sick. Today, people that are promiscuous, either to the same sex or opposite sex, they don't think they're sick. They're actually celebrating it. There are some rabbis that are helping them celebrate it. Say, no, we should welcome them. What welcome them? They're destroying their own ulam It's not about not liking them. The fact that you tell them that what they're doing is wrong is showing you do like them. If you tell somebody to move out of the train tracks, even though he's going to be annoyed that he has to move, he's still going to say, oh, you like me because you told me not to kill myself. You saved my life. So even though it hurts to change, that's the best example of how you like somebody. But for anyone who needs spiritual proof, aside from everything we've talked about for however long we've been going, that Hashem is watching, and Hashem is acting, and He's giving signs that are in plain sight, in plain sight, that people just don't want to pay attention to. You know, sometimes you have the entire treasure is in the middle of the town, but nobody, nobody sees it. The sign for the gay pride that they took upon themselves is the rainbow. Now, any one of them that would study Torah just for a few hours, they would get to Parashat Noach. In Parashat Noach, Hashem destroyed the world. Why did Hashem destroy the world? He destroyed the world because we were committing non-stop sex crimes. We're wasting seed, which he considers 100% murder, which is the reason why he made it the first mitzvah, other than don't worship another god, don't idol worship. The very following mitzvah was that he gave the seven Noahide laws was do not murder, which is also relevant to not wasting seed. He says the one who spills blood of a man within a man, his own blood will be spilled. Here he's talking about wasting seed. But aside from that, he says that the creation went against its creator and itself by being with different species or the same gender. So men with men, women with women, lions with zebras, zebras with kangaroos. The whole world went and was inf- infected and infested by this bestiality, homosexuality, and things that are the opposite of the creation. 
Hashem said, I must destroy it. There's no hope for it. After he destroyed the world, there was only a few people left. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and also Og Melech Abashan, Og the giant. And the animals. Now after Noah came out, saw the whole world's destroyed, it's horrible. Hashem said, as a sign, I'm going to give that I'm not going to destroy the world again. I'm going to put this rainbow. This rainbow is the sign of the covenant between you and I. That I'm not going to destroy the world. So every time you see that there is a rainbow, that is because I remember the deal we had. But Chazal says, from here we learn we're not allowed to point and look at the rainbow when it goes in the sky. Say, oh, oh, look at the rainbow. Why are we not allowed to look at the rainbow more than just once after we make the blessing and that's it? We can't point, tell people to look at it. Can't say, hey, hey, look at the rainbow, it's so pretty. Make a whole room full of rainbows. Why? Why are we not allowed? Hashem said it's a covenant. Shabbat's a covenant. Tefillin's a covenant. Brit Milah's a covenant. Why can't we look and celebrate this rainbow? Why isn't all of our Siduim full of rainbows? Because Hashem told us, this rainbow is a covenant between me and Noah that I'm not going to destroy the world. Meaning that if I didn't have this covenant, every time you see a rainbow, I want to destroy the world. Every time you see a rainbow, it's only because I'm reminding myself of the deal I had with Noah. Not to destroy the world, but if I didn't have the deal... You have all gotten to a level of sin so great that I want to destroy the world. But I'm not, because of Noah, from 5,000 years ago. Why did he destroy the world? Sex crimes. So these homosexual idiots that are celebrating their war against Hashem, they're using the rainbow as a sign, now realizing it's a sign against them. He destroyed the world because of actions like that. He, he destroyed the world because of foolishness like that. That rainbow should be like the kryptonite to gay people. Because it's a sign that he wants to destroy the world. Why? Because of you. Not because of the tzaddik that's learning Gemara at 1 o'clock in the morning. Not because of the woman that's preparing for Shabbat, working overnight, just to make sure our kids have something to eat. Not because of the righteous Gentile that's just trying to learn the seven mitzvot de Noach. How could I? How could I help Am Yisrael? No, not because of them. He wants to destroy the world because of you, because you are not only disclosing to the world what happens in closed bedrooms, which is an immodest act to begin with. But you're publicizing your war against Hashem. The last one that publicized his war against Hashem was Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to go to war with against Hashem. 
So Shem said, you want to go to war against me? It took you 500 years to get to the bottom, 500 light years to get to the bottom of my chair. To the bottom of my chair. Another 500 years to get to the next level of the chair. Another 500 years to get to the next level of the chair. Meaning, you could live thousands of years and you still won't even get to my chair. And you want to fight me? So for that, he turned him into an animal for seven years. He was the king of the world. You want to act like an animal? At the very least, do it in your own private home. Don't go to such an extent of going to war with Hashem in public. No one needs to know what you do. No one needs to know what you do. Because the reality of it is, how proud are you of what you're doing anyway? Because if your father was like you, you wouldn't be here. If your father was a homosexual, you wouldn't be here. So enough with this public desecration of Hashem Barach, and even more so, enough of rabbis trying to appease them. There's only one Torah, it never changed, it hasn't changed, it never will change. Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen ve'amen.